how the heck do you get to market on a product like this with a company so big as Google and not test this? That's, that's my only thought about that. I'm just like, how does this happen? AI, even though, yes, it, it, it's programmed to optimize and to, to learn and to continue to, you know, kind of grow itself, there is a model that is input by a human that sets the parameters and dictates how these, you know, artificial intelligence learning machines operate. So there is a brain behind them and it ultimately is, uh, you know, an uh, one that is created by uh, a human or a creator. And I think it's just another good reflective example of how these big, large, if you like the word or not, woke organizations are, you know, creating uh, products and services that they want to display a certain type of ideology. And this was a perfect one that was showcased front and center. That was kind of hard to argue uh, that they weren't doing it. It's just so weird. I mean, again, it's just so weird when, when you're going through that. But I think it only, you said, how could it happen in a company as big as Google? And I think it could only happen in a company as big as Google. Welcome back to the King's Table podcast. I am your host, Ashish Nathu. I am, of course, joined by my good friends for another kick-ass episode. Aaron Amuchastegui, the trend spotter himself, Maddie Atchison, the hero of hospitality, and of course, the one and only sage, Mike Ayala. Good to see you guys. Excited for today's topics. We have a, a, a really interesting deck, uh, lots of random topics, but I think it'll be a good one today. Um, I also want to remind the listeners, again, that the cost of listening is that you have to follow us and uh, share with someone that may get value from our content. So please uh, thank you guys so much for listening, but make sure you share it with somebody. We are always available on YouTube. I think the comments on YouTube are really growing. So super fun. Make sure you subscribe there. I think if you go to YouTube today, you can push us over 300 subscribers. We're like at 298 today when I checked earlier. Um, and of course, on all the audio podcasts as well, Spotify, Apple, all the good stuff. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we're just having so much fun here. So let's just get into it. I think this first topic is a really good one. Um, it's a broad topic right now. Obviously, AI is a huge part of this world. Um, two specific things that I'll start us off with, and then we'll go around the table. Firstly, Google AI launched uh, its, its AI product that competes with ChatGBT called uh, Gemini, it launched it last week. It was a huge snafu, huge problem, um, clearly showed bias in its answers. I think there's stuff all over the internet about how biased it is. If you ask it for, um, you know, what, what does George Washington look like? Or it just failed in showing white people, I think, is, is what the bias was, right, Mike? Um, clearly, it was biased to white people. So essentially, if you go online, there's a lot of social media posts about this where people are putting in prompts to look for answers on people, looking for pictures, asking for history, and it almost wipes out, um, it wipes out white people. It has everything leaning towards diversity and inclusion and uh, acceptance and things like that. But when it comes directly to white people, it's like, well, you're now being a racist or you're somehow being exclusionary or things like that. So super fascinating topic. The other thing about AI is NVIDIA 
just tapped, I think, $2 trillion in terms of valuation, had a huge week last week. Um, and that stock is just kind of taking over the world, uh, definitely showing a lot of growth opportunity. Uh, and I have it right here. They're trading just around $780 at about a $1.95 trillion valuation. Just crazy. Um, and it's almost doubled in like six months. So really, really fun times. I guess why don't we kind of go off, uh, start around the table. Tell us about what you guys are thinking about the world of AI. Is this a one-time kind of snafu? Is this sort of a seasonal, you know, like a stock bubble type of thing? Do you think it's here to stay? And why do you think that? And then also where and how are you using AI functionally within your businesses um, to help you make better decisions? We'll start with Mikey. I, I think what's like, what's interesting about the Google thing is, um, you know, at the end of the day, AI is a program, right? And so, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a minute, just with something that we're implementing in our business, but AI is literally just a program. So the, the Google thing, what, what kind of blows my mind is you've got a company as big and in air quotations, intelligent as, as Google, I mean, AI is only doing what they program it to do. And so I'm just, we were talking off camera, Aaron was, Aaron was talking about just, you know, every day he's just like, like, why would you do that? And the whole crazy thing about this is, is like, how did this get through? Because obviously they programmed the AI. And Big miss. We're, Somebody yeah, missed. We're in, we're in this weird time where like, we think AI and I'm not saying we won't get to a place where AI doesn't take over the world. Maybe it does and it gets smarter and it thinks for itself. And I understand all of that, but AI is just a program. And so that's my like face slap emoji. Like how the heck did this happen? And it's very obvious how it happened. It's the woke ideology that was programmed into it. And like, how the heck do you get, how the heck do you get to market on a product like this with a company so big as Google? Um, and, and, and not test this. That's, that's my only thought about that. I'm just like, how does this happen? They said Google executives pause select features of the company's Gemini chatbot and, and image generator on Wednesday after the program's AI adamantly refused to produce images of white people. In a bizarre display, Google executives apologetically described as missing the mark. Gemini responded to users' requests with pictures of black Vikings, Asian female popes, African Nazis, and diverse di versions of American founding fathers, calling them historical inaccuracies that suggest a much deeper problem with the system powering the AI. Gemini served as Google's entry into the competitive large language model market dominated by... So basically, it continues to go on there, but... Um, I just thought it was very, very interesting that, uh, like you, what you said, like AI, even though yes, it, it it's programmed to optimize and to to learn and to continue to, you know, kind of grow itself. There is a model that is input by a human that sets the parameters and dictates how these, you know, artificial intelligence learning machines operate so there is a brain behind them and it ultimately is uh you know an uh, one that is created by uh, a human or a creator and i think it's just another good reflective example of how these big large if you like the word or not woke organizations are you know creating uh products and services that they want to 
display a certain type of ideology. And this was a perfect one that was showcased front and center. That was kind of hard to argue uh, that they weren't doing it. It's just so weird. I mean, again, it's just so weird when, when you're going through that. But I think it only, you said, how could it happen in a company as big as Google? And I think it could only happen in a company as big as Google. Mm. Yeah. Right. It ha like it Good has point. to be companies that are so huge that then there's certain people that are in charge of certain divisions and certain people that are in charge of certain projects. And the, but AI, it's, I guess the other part of me, that's the why. So you're like, yes, there's human input that starts the equation, but the equation takes off based on information that it's fed, right? It's like based on the information that it can go have access to in the world. And if it's reading everything on the internet, then that's where it's taking its info. I think that's where chat GPT came from beginning. It was like, they didn't, they couldn't update it on the, on the internet, but it's, it is pretty wild, but man, I think that, uh, I think that we will see things like this in AI. I mean, I still think it's baffling, but this was similar to what Maddie said. Google CEO calls AI tool controversial, completely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. You know, they were equating Elon Musk's influence to Adolf Hitler, right? So it's like, yes, wherever, wherever it's getting access to the info to create its responses. But I think AI is fantastic. You know, I go on and so chat, openai.com is where I go to and first start chat GPT. There's this cool thing in there now where you could say you can essentially explore GPTs, like any sort of GPT that you want. I started playing with like um, image generators last week. Yeah, this is I, super fun. I used to send stuff to my graphic designer and I would and I said I started with like, hey, create a mascot of a hawk wearing a gray sweatsuit. Right. And I get this within two seconds. And now I have a full time graphic designer and I'd sent her this request. And like five days later, I hadn't gotten it. And I get this and I go. Well, try something else. And you guys can see if you're watching it on the screen, these different versions of like mascots of it's creating the most bizarre things. I told it I need a way to show an example of virtual door knocking, right? Because I'm advertising one of my software products, PropHawk, and it's like, a, and we're saying, hey, it's like you could door knock 10,000 doors from the comfort of your home. And some of these images that it sent me back for virtual door knocking, I thought were just fanta fantastic, mm -hmm. right? Like the, sorry, just going the idea of a hologram. The way that I used it today was a guy, a guy said, hey, can you write an editorial for our uh, real estate piece? We'll put it on our website, put it in the news. You've got half a page. And I tell uh, ChatGPT in here, I said, I want to write a short half page editorial. The title would be there is no housing shortage. Housing supply can be solved by creative agents and investors because I've got a, a thing that I know, but I don't. And I said, a few topics include foreclosure postings are increasing, but most of those scheduled for foreclosure have equity creates the ideal win-win to, to, for people to buy these properties at a discount. Also, there's 16 million vacant homes in the U.S. and a, and a housing shortage of 3.2 million. So the shortage is because inventory is old and needs work, not because there's really, a, and investors can solve the problem, right? So I give it this paragraph and it busts out a half a page. And then I said, and, and I'm just going to read like one quick little excerpt of it, right? So it said, Foreclosure postings are on the rise, sparking fears of a housing crisis. Yet beneath the surface, many of these properties, um, you know, buyers can acquire these properties. It's a testament to the potential for mutually beneficial transactions. So it's so it's a good article. And I said, can you make the same article sound a little bit less formal and less wordy? Mm -hmm. Right. Because it was like, again, it was make like, it, make it sound like me. Make it sound like me. So then it does. Hey, we've been hearing a lot about the how to story, but let's take a closer look. Turns out the problem might not be what it seems. Is it a ring in our hands about the lack of homes? Maybe it's time to get more uh, inventive. And this one actually sounds like me. So now mm -hmm. I've got to go add a couple paragraphs about Propoc in there, shoot it <laughs> over to him, and, and I'm done. Uh, like, I'll do a couple edits to that. 
but it's like it didn't create it out of thin air. I knew I knew what I wanted my editorial to be about, but then it it makes it. And so the, the image generator, I can't wait till the the video generator thing works. I got I got uh, toasted the other day. I, there's a I thought it was working. There was like a text to video deal, and so I type it in, and it says like we're generating it, and then it says here's a link to your video, and it's the the Rick Roll video. I was like, we tricked you. We can't actually convert you know, text to video. <laughs> It was like we can't tr- we we can't convert text to videos yet. We tricked you, but it's okay. Hmm. I want to go back to the the whole um, Google thing because I think that's really there, there's a topic to be had about how Google does mess this up. And and you guys were mentioning this earlier. Maybe it's too they're too big to be able to solve this, but you can make the argument that Google has more data than anybody on the planet. If you go to search, forget about the AI for a minute. If you go to search, is search bias? Like if you, if you, if I Google something and Mike Google something, we all four of us Google something, will we get the same results for the same exact question? I don't know. Why don't we do it right now? No, we won't Mike. No, No, the answer, the answer is no, but, but this is, this is where I think Google has dominated. And, and again, it's just the face slap for me on AI we won't get the same thing because I actually yeah. had this idea at one point in time and I don't remember who told me this, but I had this idea of like just having my, my, e, uh, my EA just like, you know, search articles and, and find things for me. And somebody made the comment to me, well, the problem with that is Google's oh, yeah. bias. I remember you talked about this earlier. Yeah. Because of pixels and all of that. But I think that's brilliant in the sense that Google feeds us the information that we want. Now, is that a good thing for, you know, our echo chamber? No. Maybe that's like a toggle that you can see like, okay, show me stuff that I like to see or don't show me stuff that I normally see and show me just fact. But I think what I'm saying is if Google can't, you can't search for Google, you can't search for fact on Google unbiasedly, then what makes us think that all of a sudden, if you translate that to opinion or somehow Gemini is going to look for fact and regurgitate that back. I think that's a big problem. We is, Now we're assuming that AI is going to take facts, regurgitate them in a comprehensive way, and they're still fact, but it's not. Well, I mean, Google I th- I is also that, coded by people. I think the hole in that thinking, though, with search versus AI, and they're currently they're completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go search something on Google – it doesn't mean it's fact because what are you getting? You're getting results that are on the internet, which could be from 10,000 different but The sources. whole internet is so, biased. Yeah. Then yeah. Like you're, you have to sort through That's the, inf- we, we've talked about this so many times on the show. Um, but with AI again, because it's so early and will it get smarter? Yes. But just in the case of Google, when they launch this, it always starts with the parameters that they decide. Yeah. And so it's not so much, you're getting a bunch of information that you get to choose what you want to read or not read, or it's, th- this is what it's telling you. And so I think that's the challenge with AI that we currently have to watch. But I think Google getting into the game is exciting because it, like you said, it's the biggest database ever. But again, where they start with their parameters and their programming, you get stuff like <laughs> barred off the rails, you know, deciding that Hitler's Asian. Really quick, 100% Google is biased. It has been biased. There was a lot of times during 2020, there were so many examples that came up of the autofill stuff, or if you were trying to find certain articles, you just couldn't find them. You see it on our YouTube page. 
the controversial short YouTube short videos that we put on there. If we say something about Biden in there, we get five views compared to others. Like it's, it's almost like statistically impossible to, for us to only get five views on one of our like short mm. videos that's on there when the one to the next of it has 2000. So we know it's biased. There's a, there's several articles and it was really bad during uh, COVID times. And I remember yeah. seeing a bunch of examples of it, but just to put some like stats on it. So this company said we found that 63% of Google search results were nonpartisan. At the same time, 32% of the results came from left-leaning publications or 5% of the right. Um, you know, and, and there's a whole bunch of articles. Google news shows strong political bias. This was in 2023. Um, does the Google search engine have a left left wing bias? Truth or you know, so it definitely has biases, and the and it talks about all these different studies. Um, but it happens a lot during election time. But I remember seeing crazy examples of it when you would type in a you know, is this like this? And it would, you know, it was there was like a really funny example of you could actually search for one candidate and a different candidate would pop up on their like their fill page and not a paid well, ad like a normal. Who has Google? If Google's by now, you should ask Gemini is Gemini bias. Yeah. See, see what the output is. Mike, go ahead. Well, what's interesting, I was just even thinking as Aaron said that, I mean, just look at where, look at where tech companies exist and look at the yeah, people that true. this is a, I got to, I guess, be a little bit careful with this statement, but like, it, it's not like Google is based in, you know, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, so I just, I mean, the people, the, the people that live and work where these companies are, I mean, we, Aaron and I live in Austin, Texas, and it's like this little blue dot in the middle of a freaking sea of red people. And, you know, that ideology is obviously within the product. So, um, I don't, I don't know what you do about that. I look at AI as a, as a massive point of leverage, you know, like I, I don't use it as much for and and you can use it for research you know there's a lot of stuff that it can give you a very quick you know synopsis or snapshot of certain things we're using it for a lot of you know website copy email campaigns building out automations i can even give it you know certain things on spreadsheets that i'm working on and there's a cell that's broken and hey help me fix this formula and it'll do i mean it's so many great things my favorite one that I use it for is my dad AI prompt. And oh, tell us this. It has probably been one of the coolest things that has come out of chat GPT for me. So I'll just share with you guys what the prompt is. My kids ask me all kinds of stuff that I wish I had quick answers for. And instead of going on Google and searching and reading through a bunch of stuff, I created a dad AI bot. So I'm going to give you guys my prompt that I used. You are my dad AI. What is that you ask? You're going to be my assistant when it comes to helping me be the world's best dad possible to my daughters, Ellen, Evelyn. I will lean on you for leadership, dad jokes, common questions, teaching homeschool, building confidence, dinner table topics for thought-provoking discussions, helping fix broken hearts, and everything in between. Everything you help me with, I want to help teach, enlighten, and elevate my daughters, both emotionally, physically, and mentally. I want it to make us closer and make them strong, intelligent, and emotionally aware young women. I would like you to use a little bit more conservative and tone when you answer my questions. And then mm. essentially it said, that's wonderful. And it went on all these things. And essentially... I use this probably three or four times a day when it comes to things with my kids. I was just out the other day doing a one-on-one -on -one with my daughter, Evelyn, 
And I said, I'm out to lunch with my six-year-old daughter. We're in, we're doing our quarterly one-on-one day where we spend quality time together. What are some things that we could discuss at lunch that would bring us closer? And then it literally gave me a list of 10 different things. And it created the coolest discussion between me and my six-year-old. Really? And I probably could have, you know, led into some of these things as well. But there were certain questions on here that I asked that we went down rabbit holes and talked about all these cool things that I would have never honestly thought to ask my six-year-old. So again, that's just one example of how you can use it, right? We have prompts that are specific to you are a world-class copywriter. You are a world-class salesperson. You are, right? Whatever it is. Different GBTs. Different GBTs. But but treating it like it is the smartest assistant you've ever had access to and then working within those threads over and over and over, that's where the machine learning kicks in and it starts to get better and it knows you better and it knows your tone better and everything you put in there. Now, all of a sudden, it's compiling all this data in one vertical of discussion and it just gets better and better and better as time goes on. So I'm obsessed with it. I don't like the wokeness part of it. But that being said, I haven't run into it too much, honestly. Um, I feel like you kind of got to seek that stuff out. That being said, it's there. So just like with everything you read on the internet, whether it's on the right side or on the left side, right? Take it with a grain of salt, question it, do some research, you know, double check it and move forward. But I think too many people are getting hung up on, you know, uh, some of the things that I agree are important to discuss and talk about. Um, But I think ChatGPT is unbelievably powerful when it comes to utilizing it as a tool in your business or your personal life. Yeah, spot on. I think operational leverage is probably the best place to use it. Don't look at, yeah. don't use it like a dictionary or an encyclopedia. Mike, what are you doing with it? I I was actually thinking when I was researching this, um, Aaron's entire prop hoc business, I think, is you know he's a big big component of that is AI. So I'd love to kind of hear that more. But I, I I'm in a pod in a in a mastermind that I'm in with this guy who built an AI bot, and I've gotten to know this guy like really well. And he's always talking about his business. And I thought I understood his business and this, this bot that they built, it, it was for network marketers. And so um, they, they, they install this bot on the front end of all their funnels and lead gen and everything else. And instead of having, they used to have like 15 um, full-time salespeople on their, in their company, like making outbound calls. And then what they did is they took this bot and they implemented the bot the first three days so when a lead hits their, um, you know, HubSpot or whatever CRM they're using, the bot is like programmed to communicate with, with their client. And I just always thought it was the most fascinating thing. And it took their sales team, their outbound callers from like 15 down to like two. Mm. And I was just like mesmerized by this. But then the crazy thing was I was in Cabo San Lucas like a month ago and I was talking to a guy that raises capital and he said, I was telling him some of my challenges with growing and outbound sales calls. And cause here's the thing, like when we run ads our you know, we're targeting accredited investors. And what we see is this huge spike from Friday afternoon to Monday morning of leads. And it makes a lot of sense because high net worth individuals, people that are working in tech companies, they're running businesses, they're not scrolling Facebook during the week. Right. And, and so our, when we come back in Monday morning, we've got this just stack of leads and our goal is always to hit those leads in the first 24 hours and it's bandwidth issue. So it takes us to like Thursday to get caught up. And by then, you know, you want to hit leads as fast as possible. So I was telling this guy this problem and he said, do you know, 
do you know uh, this guy, Zach? And I said, yeah. And he said, he's got a bot that would help you solve that problem. And I'm like, I thought it was for multi-level marketers. He's like, it's for anything. And so we're implementing this bot right now. I don't, I don't have results for it. But when I was talking, they showed me results after results after results. When the bot does at minimum a 24% better job of converting mm. leads to appointments with a, with a closer than, than a human can do. And that's the bot just doing text. It does at minimum, their worst results are 24% better setting calls than a human calling and having a conversation with someone. And that to me is just mesmerizing. So we're implementing a bot. And the good thing about this too, is like the bot doesn't sleep. So a lead comes in on Friday night at 10 o'clock Boom. Within a few minutes, the bot is communicating with that person and then it has all weekend. And I'm just really excited to see how AI changes this for us, number one, in the near term, but in the long term, I'm just so excited for the results. And so back to Maddie's point, you know, we have all these frustrations and 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 the issues that come up with like Google Bard, but these are really like um the guys from all in were talking about this. Like a lot of this stuff is like toy apps and stuff right now like a lot of the problems that exist are really in that realm of like Maddie was saying research and all of that. But when you look at the practical application of implementing AI in your actual business, I don't think we have to worry as much. It doesn't mean that the bot's not going to go off the rails every once in a while. Um, but it, we probably don't have to worry about it saying something stupid. Cause back to my point on Google, who gets to program the bot that's speaking to my investors or in Aaron's case, you know, real estate agents or, or people that, you know, they're calling who gets to program the bot. We do. We're the mm -hmm. ones that are putting the input output in and, you know, I guess, um, objections that it will handle. So that's, that's what I'm excited about is not from a macro perspective. Of course, it's going to have issues, but when you bring it down to the micro and you look at like what Maddie was talking about, how can I really apply this in my life? I'm really excited to implement that in the business. And like I said, I know Aaron, your whole prop hawk is based on some of this, right? Yeah, we've got, it, it, there's like two different pieces of our software that's based on it. And the, the early stuff was kind of what so much like AI and data machine, machine learning could do. I mean, before, uh, you know, AI was machine learning and it was the idea of you would put in a whole bunch of data and it would tell you things that you couldn't normally see in a spreadsheet. And that started with feeding it just tens of millions of records. And it started to come up with the people that were likely to sell their house or likely to stop making their mortgage payment in the next six months and things like that based on historical markers that it also had on previous people. So essentially it took all the people that, you know, missed a payment last year and said, well, what did, what happened before? Well, of them, a certain percentage of them stopped mowing their lawn and got these sorts of liens or a certain percentage of them stopped paying their water bills. A certain percentage had lived there for a while or lost their job or likely mm -hmm. to sell or people that like bought a, you know, had a new, had another kid or their kid graduated from high school. So it started with machine learning leads. And now we've taken it, we're taking it to this next level. Then when we started doing texting, and outbound communication, you know, we send tens of thousands of text messages a day between all of our customers and us doing it. So we're having like 10,000 plus conversations a day uh, via text message. Well, now the machine learning is starting to a point where, um, you know, like as I'm doing it, as real estate agents or investors, there's times where like, you know what, that, that when I answered the phone and I said it that way, it worked pretty well. So we start to like figure out like a script that works naturally. And so if Maddie A is going to cold call somebody about a hotel, he has figured out like what script kind of works because it kind of started working better than others. 
Um, and so we started to learn like, oh, you know, if we send a certain text like this, we're going to get a better response. If we're just asking like, hey, is this John? Do you still in the house on Main Street? That we're going to get a better response. And if we try to ask more in the first one or something like that. But what the AI will start to be able to figure out as we've sent more and more is one, what first level text leads to the most people giving us their houses a listing or what first level text leads to the most that are there. And then now we're, we're adding these prompts in to where when they reply back and they say, who is this? It, essentially, people respond three different ways. Now our users can select one of the three ways. Like, oh, they asked who it was. And so then it prompts, this is what your best response would be. But something that the AI is starting to be able to do that over the next few months is going to get even more incredible is the AI will be able to know, like, because this is a million-dollar house, this is the text I should lead with instead of this being a $200,000 house. So it'll be able to start seeing stuff that I can't see or that I didn't know, or I'm not checking before every text as it tries to say, because every text we send is different. Nobody gets the same text. Like 100%, everything is customized just enough. And so the we have to confirm every text as it goes out. That's how we can do it legally. But um, but I do think very soon, Mike, we'll, we will be able to say, this is the sort of campaign that I'm doing, and it will feed the text, and we'll need a real person there clicking go on the button. But like when they reply, it'll feedback the same replies and things like that too. But yeah, but the idea of if you can just totally unlock it and say, no, let the AI text back as soon as someone texts us. Um, the Yeah, it'll be able to have conversations and close deals when we can't. Well, there was an interview with this this Jensen guy from NVIDIA, the CEO of, of NVIDIA, about the future of jobs in programming. And I think there's like this premise that programming software engineering has been a job that has been highly valued over the last 20 years or so but now with supercomputing and with ai um that's no longer the case and that now the user can use this computing power to actually write code for it without having any experience in writing code so there is this upskilling that has to happen for all of us in understanding how to really leverage these tools to be able to get the outputs that we want. We're using it in some some of the functions you guys have mentioned operationally, but there's probably so many other uses that we're not even considering. Um, Maddie, you mentioned this earlier about Excel. Like It has a really cool Excel feature. You can drop in Excel tools or huge data, data sets and you can ask it to run analysis or pivot tables and spit it back to you, right? So if you don't know how to run pivot tables or or do any analysis in, within Excel or you're poor with that, you can say, you know, my accounting department or my my team send me this thousand line item data set. Tell me the fourth decisions I should be making based on this, this, and this parameter and these resource parameters. Like, what should I be doing? It is so powerful to be able to do. Um, we just don't know what to ask it, right? We have to learn more and more. That's the key um, to it all. Is the that's prompts. the key to it is how to get better at asking the right questions and not getting yeah. overwhelmed with it. And find the custom GPT. Because well, now think, within them there's a whole bunch of custom because you can't just go to chat GPT and upload your no, spreadsheet. You have, you have to find I mean, the custom underlying GPT yeah. that's set up for that. That and you can train it. You can have your entire team train. A, a, a database of information that gets smarter and smarter and smarter. We're using it in engineering. Um, we've been training a, a, 
I wouldn't say it's a GBT, but it's part of like a software tool that we found that is using AI to do drawings. And so now, um, I forget what the name of the software is, but basically they've implemented AI in their tools. So you spend all last four or five months developing all these little mechanics, all these little like details of, for in our example, it's furniture. So drawings, details, uh, all the back, the draw, uh, the drawer face, all those kinds of little engineering things. Now, when you do a drawing, it takes you the same amount of time to do one drawing, but every adjustment from there, it takes like literally seconds. So because it takes all that historical information and it just adapts all the cross sections and uh, all those kinds of things. So you're talking about hundreds of hours a month of saving time and servicing customers more efficiently, right? Um, yeah, but this is going to be really exciting to see. We just have to learn how to do more of it. I want to pivot to this. Um, we had this in the chat too. I want to talk about why this is important, how this affects people, if at all. Pelosi made $1.4 million in 90 days from the NVIDIA stock trade. And there was a big article about this in the last couple of weeks that she bought uh, some historical options data showed that she paid about 380 bucks per option contract in late November when she bought some long-term $120 call options. Now they're worth about 660 bucks. So now she gained about $1.4 million. And this is just one trade. I'm seeing more and more of this on social media that I don't know why Pelosi specifically is getting called out on this. I think there's a lot of politicians that are doing this. What do you guys think? Should this be acceptable? Should it not? Should we just follow the politician trade books and make money based on what they're trading? Obviously, they know things that we don't know in advance. This is not considered insider trading, but um, if your wife works for a public traded firm and tells you something that you shouldn't know, that's insider trading. What do you guys think about this? Uh, and should this be stopped? Oh, 100% needs to be stopped. I mean, in my opinion, this is uh, obviously a major conflict of interest when you've got, you know, people who are legitimately like Nancy Pelosi is a policy maker. She's a policy maker. And when you are benefiting in a very, very egregious and profitable manner as she is, it's it all it does is take away from the integrity of the entire system, right? Like it's the same equivalent, in my opinion, of if people don't believe in free and fair elections and there's actually proof that shows that and that just continues to happen you're eroding the fabric and the integrity of the entire system and infrastructure as a whole. She has the same kind of power to do that in the stock market. And if we know that she's got insider trading and all of a sudden her track record just continues to affirm and affirm and affirm and affirm that, there's no reason why over time, bigger institutions and other, and, and honestly, why there was a study on Reddit around this of why Nvidia inflated so significantly over the course of the last couple of weeks? It was a very large jump in market trading right after her her trade was posted public, and retail mm. Reddit users went nuts and were like, "I don't need to know anything. She knows it all. She's the one who's got the insider information. She's the one who's got the hack on the system." And guess what? Nobody's checking her. Her track record shows she's crushing it. And I forget what the, I think her in the first 92 days 
of I wish I could pull it up in the first 92 days of the year, she had made something like nine, uh, 10x her entire annual salary in the first 92 days just from her inside or from her stock trading. But here's the thing. She's not the only one who is doing it. And honestly, she's not the best one. It's happening on all sides of the aisle. And I mean, when you look at it, right, it's pretty much this is the S&P 500. And all of these politicians are outperforming the S&P 500. This guy, Brian Higgins, 238% return on his investment portfolio. He is one of the most notorious guys that uh, has done some very questionable trades. But when you look at it, right, you got three Republicans right below him, then two more Democrats and Republican, two Democrats. So a lot of them are doing it. Pelosi's, where is she at? She was down She's here somewhere. Like eight or nine on the top. When go. was that? When was that chart? This chart was at the end of 2023. It's um, it's funny. You can like Google like how to trade. So there's like websites out there that tell you what the Pelosi's are investing in. So you can like invest when they invest. Yeah, this is like, unusual. So the, Wells, they do the stock. They, they basically track all the politicians who trade. They track the Dave Portnoy, some of the big people that like to trade and have big kind of influences. But these are, I mean, just like Trump was saying a tweet, moving the market. Now you've got people like Pelosi moving the market because there's no checks and balances to what she's doing. It's it's so frustrating though, and just such a bunch of crap that it's that the so when Elon tweeted funding secured, right? Sends a tweet funding secured. He got in trouble gets, for that. He got fined like out the it was insider trading, it was illegal, it was a big, big freaking deal. If somebody um yes, if you told your spouse, hey, we think we're gonna merge with this company and they went and bought stock on it, insider trading huge deal it is and i i don't quite remember if, if like if the president isn't allowed to like actually run their businesses anymore when they're president but i think they have to put other people in place yeah. so technically like they aren't allowed to like make money while they're president and i get why maybe they didn't put the same protections in for congress because congress don't get paid very much and a lot of people were doing it as a side gig and things like that but when they come in and they use the examples of the Pelosi's or the Bidens or those Republicans in the same mm. thing that, that they're making X amount of dollars per year, but they're worth tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's not because they bought real estate in San Francisco 40 years ago, because that would be yeah. more mm. understanding for me. That would be more yeah. like a normal story. Um, but instead, it's this way. And it's um, I just I find it really frustrating. I think it's it's super obvious. They're never going to make it. Uh, illegal and it could be something as simple as saying you just can't make trades while you know while you're serving um like they maybe they still run their businesses you just can't make trades while you're serving and and also on the other side of that now maybe it's another one of those things where we go hey it's the rules of the game they're allowed to so mm -hmm. if i want to play by the rules of the game i should just invest in stocks whenever they do yeah right like so i should true. just follow them on all their bets and then like play that's it's within the confines of the of the rule of the game so maybe i should just yeah. play it Create an investing chat GBT bot, put a hundred grand, follow Pelosi's trades within five minutes of every trade and get out every time she gets out. And I think my portfolio will do just fine. There, yeah. there, there is a, 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 I forget what the handle is, but there is a handle on Twitter that just follows Nancy Pelosi trades and reports the second that she does stuff. And it's got millions of followers. Yeah, yeah. man.
Crazy. So maybe you're right. Maybe that's why NVIDIA spiked because some of the news came out on who was buying it when. And if the policymakers are going to make it easier for AI to get through, these data centers will keep buying AI chips. Hey, this business got here's the other thing. 10 trillion if, in its future. If I know a company is going to be successful, right? Like, of course, I'm going to invest in it too if it's not illegal, right? So yeah. if nobody's making it illegal and, and politicians get to see, like, if it'd be one thing if they make it illegal, but if they're not going to make it illegal, of course, if somebody gives me a hint, like, hey, we're, we're going to do this. Tesla's going to merge with this company. How would I not go do it? How would I not go invest in it if I knew it was going to go through the roof? Yeah. So let's talk about this thing in New York, Maddie. This is a really interesting topic, I think, specifically for our listener base who has a lot of real estate guys in it. Um, I want to share this story here. Last week, I know this is a little bit old for everybody, but um, for some of the people that haven't been following, Donald Trump was charged with a $454 million civil fraud judgment last week. Um, he's now appealing it. But I want to talk about what this is, what this is about, because I think this is really important for the investor listener on this call, um, because this affects everybody. So Donald Trump was cited that he was doing civil fraud in his real estate empire, saying that he basically lied about his net worth and his balance sheet to be able to get loans and things like that. So I wanted to pull this up um, specifically from our chat. And this is uh, something that Kevin O'Leary talks about. And I, yeah, I think he does he, a really good job of explaining this. So let me kind of pull this up here. On a, on a block anywhere in America, and it's worth, let's say, $500 million. And you want to build a building right beside it. You go to the bank and say, this building is worth $500 million. I'd like to borrow a construction finance loan against this asset. And I want you to tell me it's worth $500 million too. And the bank negotiates with you and says, well, no, we think it's worth $400 million. And you fight it out. You're always trying to show your assets in the brightest light with the sunshine you could possibly determine for them. You want them to be worth the very most because you're only going to get a 40 or 50% loan to value, as it's called. Then you borrow that money, in the case of a $500 million asset, maybe you get $250 million, and you build a new building with a construction finance loan. And so that's what this case is all about. What, and, and by the way, forget about Trump. Every single real estate developer everywhere on earth does this. They always talk about their asset being worth a lot, and the bank says no. And that's just the way it is. So... In this case, when I'm trying to figure out, and I'm not pro or con, or I don't care about the politics, who lost money? Nobody. The bank got paid back the construction finance loan, and a new building was built. And if, if you're... Yeah, so anyways, I, I mean, we all know what this is, but I just thought it was really relevant to our listener base. I mean, they're using this to flush him out, flush out his coffers. I think he has some, I don't know crazy like 7 million bucks of interest or $700,000 of interest a day or some crazy number. Um, and he has to pay it in order to appeal it, if, if I understand it correctly. So really, really fascinating. But this is something that uh, I don't think the average person understands why this case exists. And it is, it's something that we all do as investors. I won't say we, we are doing this fraudulently, but we are using arbitrary values that are not, you know, to inflate the balance sheet to be able to get loans done. Um, 
And if no one gets hurt, what's the problem? So love your guys' thoughts on this. It's funny because not just real estate investors though either. It's everyone that applies to rent one of my properties. It's everyone that applies for a car loan. You know, everybody is going to do the best case. They're going to say, well, what do you make this year? I remember when I was a salaried employee that also had a chance to make 15% a year bonuses. And when I would apply for a credit card, I wasn't going to say that I was a $65,000 base. I was going to say I make $85,000 a year because every time a bonus comes up. So everyone, whenever you're applying for a loan or anything, you are going to use the best case scenario. Because if you don't, you are screwing yourself because because regardless, you know, Kevin's point too, the regardless of what number you give them, they're still going to do their own records and say, well, we don't think it's worth that much. So we're going to do this instead. I've got one property. They're like, well, we also want to get you know, a, a life insurance policy on it. You know, just in, just in case we want a couple extra backup and some stuff requires a personal guarantee and some stuff doesn't. It's, um, it's playing within the rules and the confines of the game. They give you the ability to decide where that value comes from. You can use a rent, you can use a Zillow's estimate, or you can use an appraisal and you can use an appraisal that happened more recently. It's, um, it's pretty ludicrous for that to be that big of a fine. I think it is obviously political only because I think there's a gazillion investors in that area that could be caught doing the same thing. And back in the foreclosure crisis, it was like, it was the same of them going, hey, you guys were giving loans to people knowing they didn't have the income. And you were writing on here, you were, you were doing it anyway, and now you're foreclosing on the properties. It's like, I don't know, the, uh, it's just the rules of the game. And, and banks also benefit from it. Like banks like doing the loans, right? So the banker that did the loan and they got the fees and everything else, they weren't. Does anybody know why it came up? Like what started the lawsuit? Like who's, who actually sued him? I think the DA just found a case against him and yeah, it was, it was politically Leticia, charged. Leticia, Leticia James. Yeah. She's the one who's been just, I mean, her life is obsessed over doing whatever she can. And she even went on a week after this, you know, ruling came out and said, if he can't pay it, we will seize Trump tower and take it from him to make sure that he is pain and full on those damages. You know, it's even I'm, like, oh, go ahead. I No, I, I mean, just... it's scary, Maddie. She on her Twitter posts the cost of interest every single day. That's Does she, Oh, is she really? Think about that. Yeah. She's yeah. like, this is how much interest it is today. It's like crazy. It's a 454 it's million civil fraud judgment. It's blatant, man. And and that with the Pelosi thing we were talking about, like if you can't add up all these things, how? Well, yeah, it, right. How ridiculous. just how how bass backwards it all is, right? I mean, yeah. Joe Biden, you know, didn't really cancel student debt. What he actually did was he transferred that debt from the people he wants to bribe to vote for him, and he put it on the national balance sheet for all of us to share in that debt. And he's now forcing people without debt or people who paid off their debt to pay other people's debt. But when Trump takes out a loan and pays it back with interest, it's a crime. But when you take out a student loan and don't pay it back, then Biden forgives the loan, steals the money from taxpayers to pay it back. It's not a crime, right? Like it's, it's that perfect example of unless it fits my narrative or our agendas, you know, uh, administration's agenda, then we'll back it. If it doesn't, 
right? There's some warped mentality and mindset around how we can justify, you know, this action when at the end of the day, more and more people are waking up and going, no freaking way. Like if that can happen to him, you know, there's nothing that says this can't happen. And that's why investors are going, why the hell would I invest my money? I mean, you're seeing big businesses now continue to pull out more after this. You're seeing investors going, I'm not... Grant Cardone said, I was going to invest a billion dollars in New York City this year. I thought there was going to be some real upside in New York. And after seeing stuff like this, that is totally illegal when you think about how they are leveraging and weaponizing the court system to go and attack a political opponent, that doesn't give any assurity to anybody to want to park money in a city or a state like that, right? Especially when you've got right stuff where we're given prepaid $10,000 debit cards and free housing to illegal aliens, displacing kids out of schools, right? I mean, it's wild. Just sending billions to foreign countries without the states or our country as a whole receiving anything back. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, I don't know, for me, it just feels like common sense. It, it pisses me off. I'm like, how are how are we not like doing anything against these things that are in plain sight right in front of mm. us now. And it's almost as if they're going, we'll do whatever we want. You can't do anything about it. Like we're obviously pro business here on the pod and we can't help that. That's our, that is our bias. Like we're entrepreneurs and we believe in entrepreneurship and we believe in the freedom of it. So I don't want our listeners to think that we're always pushing our own agendas with it. But when we see this stuff, yes, it, it, it does hurt. And we start looking through the different parts of it for him to, for him to appeal, the money has to be put into an escrow account. Then if he wins, they'll give the money back. Right. But the, and he's contending like, Hey, I am worth billions of dollars. And I did have 400 million of cash when I said I did. So he's essentially saying I'm innocent. Now I wouldn't expect anything less of him uh, to <laughs> say anything different. But they say the law that she sued him under is a consumer protection statute that's used to rein in businesses that rip off customers. But in this case, no customers were harmed. And so that is, uh, that's really when people are stretching. So obvious, obvious political um, sort of attack. It looks like it's working. Um, you know, I, like it could. It could keep him off the ballot. Could keep, yeah. I mean, figuring out how well, to, like, if you're worth a couple billion and you have to put, you know, half a billion, if you have to put 25% of your net worth in an escrow account to fight something that you're probably innocent of, it does not feel like a very free, uh, safe to do business country. Did you guys but, see that? Uh, I think it was his daughter-in-law made a comment from stage that the Republican National Convention or committee would be okay with <laughs> Trump paying his legal bills out of the the Republic. I'm just like... That's the kind of stuff that, anyway, I won't go off on a tangent, but Aaron, you said something about like pro-business and, and, um, Maddie, you were talking about like the political side of it and, and Biden, this is where, when Aaron was saying, you know, kind of our leaning and my personal opinion, did you guys see that, um, a donor gave a billion dollars to Albert Einstein school of medicine? Oh and, yes. Let's talk about and, that. And there's like no tuition anymore. The, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because like, that's how it should be. And Aaron, you made the comment, you know, we're pro-business, but I was just having this conversation the other day at dinner with a, another couple. And the reality is like, this is what gets me so fired up because when the government gets involved in business and regulation and, you know, deciding who gets free tuition and all of that, if they just let the private market 
do what the private market does. And this is the eternal debate. And I understand that. But Aaron, when you were just saying that, you know, we're obviously pro-business, like that gets me excited. What an amazing piece of news that like very few people are talking about. Everybody wants to talk about like, you know, free tuition from the government, but somebody donates a billion dollars and like nobody has to pay tuition anymore. That's how it should be. How popular is that school going to be? This was super cool, man. You saw this and you saw the reaction. Did you guys see this online? Yeah. yeah so it her, was incredible, and, man. So she inherited a billion dollars. So her husband was named David Gottesman, known as Sandy. He was the protege of Warren Buffett, made an early investment in Berkshire Hathaway. So when he dies, he gives her a billion dollars and says, do whatever you think is right, was the only restriction he gave her for that billion dollars. Absolutely amazing, man. Well over 100 students at this Einstein College of Medicine will go without tuition this year. So yeah. cool. But now, I mean, everyone is, that's going to become the most prestigious school in the world because everyone that's wanting to get, that's going to go into medicine is going to apply to go there. Well, if you listen to this, if you read the article about this, they actually, she didn't want her name revealed, but they yeah. somehow convinced her to do it so that it would motivate other people to give like this. Yeah. She said they wanted to oh, rename the school cool. to her name. And she goes, yeah. I already have my name. Yeah, exactly. They want, they wanted to do that. Right. Yeah. 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 They tried it's to such they, a fun. Yeah. It's freaking so cool. super, super cool. I think more businesses, I think, I, yes, that is when business can do it when the others can't, they go, Hey, we should have free education. Well, the government cannot figure out how to do free education. So the, the private sector figured out how they could have free education in one university forever. And the teachers are excited. The students are excited and they're going to get better students every year because if I had a, if I had a, a daughter that wanted to be a doctor, I would say, cool. If you get into the Bronx medic medical school, like that's where you can go to like, like, that's where you can go become a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's going to get more competitive. The quality of the school will get better. The quality of applicants will get better. Everything. Yeah. It's amazing. All right. Let's get into this topic here. 900. Let me pull it up. Um, Mooch, you shared this with the group here, uh, $929 billion of commercial property loans set to mature in 2024. Why don't you talk about this? Yeah. You know, we've uh, talked we about this talked a little about bit. It on the pod. Yep. Yeah. We talked about it a little bit the past few weeks, but I wanted to actually put the article out there that showed the true number. It says one fifth of the commercial real estate debt is due to mature this year. One fifth. That's a big, big number. Cause we've been trying to talk about like, how big of a deal is it that rates are up? And I think we've talked about it in the last couple of pods about why that happens. And it's because most, you know, rates started changing, you know, two or three years ago. Uh, most commercial loans are this kind of five to seven year type loan by the nature of the way that commercial is done. Now, a lot of times after five to seven years, it becomes adjustable and then it can adjust up to a ceiling. And then that ceiling stays for another 10, 15, 20 years, something like that. But just, just the concept that there's a fifth of all commercial loans are going to be resetting this year. And that also means that most of those loans are more than five years old. So they would have been done at a time when cap rates and commercial valuations um, were like were graded on like a four and a five cap. And so those same, so if it's $900 billion in loans, right? I would bet that all those properties today would appraise at like 700 billion. Right. So most of those are going to be underwater uh, and it's going to require either 
uh, foreclosures or workouts and modifications and things like that. So I wanted us to share this article this time just to put the actual true number on it. Because what we've been mm -hmm. saying is, hey, commercial's in for a reckoning. Hey, there's a lot of stuff going on. We talked about the theory behind it. But I think the number uh, makes it a big deal. Since U.S. commercial real estate backs about $4.7 trillion in debt, investors, lenders, and regulators have grown antsy as the building values slide, loans mature. Price on, familiar pro on commercial properties have fallen 21% just since 2022. Office prices have dropped 35% since 2022. That's just from those cap rate things that I had talked about previously on the pod. Um, about 25% of office loans are coming due this year. So 20% of commercial in general, one in five commercial in general, one in four office loans due this year. And you can bet that nearly all of those are, uh, are in foreclosure. I do think there will come a point where there's going to be a lot more deed and loose stuff where they're just going to give the stuff back to the lenders. Um, and then the lenders are going to have to figure out a way to operate them uh, for a while uh, because they don't really want to take a loss on that haircut. They'd rather operate and get most of the payment back and be able to sell at a future date. So I think a lot of lenders are going to become operators and real estate owners. I guess everything is relative of $4.7 trillion. How important or impactful is that? Is that something that the market can absorb or not? I wonder what's the values of all home loans. This is the commercial side too. Yeah, right. That's So there's 19 trillion in home loans, right? And so you're saying there's 4 trillion in commercial. So there's 25, there's 20 to 25% as much commercial as there is residential. Can the market absorb it? I, I think well, the market, not all of it's going to go bad, right? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think most of it will go bad, but I think the market will absorb it in the sense that the only people getting hit will be the banks. And if they keep it on their books and operate it for the, operate it for the monthly cash flow, then it probably will not have a significant impact on the world. It'll have a significant impact on uh, commercial values. Now, where it may and where it will affect people like us, right, is there is a ton of retirement money and retirement funds and like CalPERS and like there's just a, a fire department funds and things like there's a there's plenty of retirement funds out there that, that they are that they own commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. They own big commercial real estate. REITs as part of their retirement funding stuff. And we'll probably see 35% decreases in, uh, in REIT stock values. Like you could, like it'd be a good time to short the commercial REITs if they haven't, if they haven't uh, corrected much over the past year yet. Do you think that stuff is priced in already? I don't know. I wonder if I could find some statistics. How does this affect the... Main Street in besides 401k investments or is it, is it affecting housing prices in any way? I don't think it'll affect housing prices. I think it'll, um, it affects those top earners. Like it'll affect boat sales. Like my income is down 75% from where it was, right? It's not really impacting, you know, things that matter, but it's impacting the things I spend a bunch of money on. Mm. So, um, well, it'll affect price measures, some smaller companies. Like they're not it, like if a bank takes over, they're not going to be spending the same amount of money on, office staff or cleaning or over uh, you know operational overhead just like anything when a when a company starts failing you tighten stuff up and you say what expenses don't we have to pay anymore you know at my office on friday they turn off the heat and electricity and like you have to request to have it back on over the weekend 
right? If you're going to hold an event at your office over the weekend, you've got to specifically request to turn the heater on. Now, I don't blame them for that, but at the same time, like that used to never be a thing. Like you just used to heat an office on the weekend during the week because you assume people are going to be in there. And just to go like, well, we can save a little bit of money if we just make sure that the heat turns off at five o'clock on Friday. There's a really interesting article in Work Life News on this. And they quoted a stat that said 75% of businesses plan to reduce office square footage next year. 75%? Yeah. So don't buy that office furniture company? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, it, it's interesting though, because we are going back to offices. So people are going back to offices, but they're probably downsizing. I mean, we talked about a lot. You guys, like a lot of you guys have been to my office here. It is like four or 5,000. It's huge. Four or 5,000 square feet. I got three people running around in here. So yeah. So when it comes to downsizing, I should probably have a smaller space. And so that's probably... You know, the thing that's happening, but as they move people back, I well, think it's, it's just not going to be these big giant stuff where people have the private stuff. We're going to be cubicles tighter together. That's sort Lucha, of I mean, I'll tell you right now we're growing. We have everyone back in the office and our team wants a bigger office. We have a couple of years left in our lease and we're like, kind of add the fringes where it's too much. It's too tight. I'm like, I don't care. Get some Costco tables, fill it in squeeze everybody in. Cause I'm just, I don't want to sign a five year lease or a three year lease. I don't want to extend because i feel like there's going to be either opportunities or just more distress so i'm i'm going in cautiously well yeah. i think also one of one of the things and much i agree with you a lot of companies are you know calling people back to the office but ken mcelroy was just talking about this we just had an investor dinner in in phoenix and and he spoke there and yeah he was how was about that mike concept. tell us what you learned man how was that that looks so awesome oh, it was great it was fantastic and and we really i mean there was 40 45 people there um, and really just led with more of a community building aspect than a pitch fest. So it was, it was super cool. Um, just brought a bunch of, you know, limited partner, potential investors together, all that good stuff. So, but anyway, back to the commercial thing, have you guys heard of this concept of shadow vacancy? Mm -hmm. So it's because we see all these reports on, you know, what's the vacancy rate in commercial? Well, as long as it's leased, then it's counted as, as occupancy. But the reality is, if some business has 10,000 square foot office space leased, then it's leased. So it's not considered vacant. But the reality is that 10,000 square feet, and Mooch, you just kind of alluded to this, just because somebody has 10,000 square feet leased doesn't mean that they're fully occupying it. So it's, it's this concept of shadow vacancy where, yes, 10,000 square foot is occupied, but really only 2,000 of that 10,000 is occupied. Mooch, back to your point, a lot of companies are coming back to work, but I think the thing that a lot of businesses have realized is there's certain teams that have to be together and there's certain teams that don't. Um, you know, I've realized like my accounting team, dude, they're working at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. We've um, talked about and these, this. these are us based people, right? These, these, they're just cranking stuff out. You can see by their output. And, and honestly, I think if we told them to come back to work, um, I, I'd have a revolt on my hands, but when you have like, you know, programmers and engineers and teams that need to collaborate, they have to be in place. And so I just wonder how many companies, I mean, even just Apple telling their 140 employees that have to relocate to Austin um, that are working on the Siri team, they wanted them all together in one place. They need collaboration. They need, you know, people being together. So I just wonder how many, number one, I think shadow vacancy is a big problem, which is the premise of this article. 
But then I wonder how many people, even though companies are calling people back in, what departments, what teams, what can be virtual and what can't. So, but just yeah. that stat, Maddie, I was quoting a stat, uh, Work Life put out an article that said um, that, and this was in December of 2023, they said that 75% of businesses that responded plan to reduce office space in 2024. Is there an app for this? There needs to be a website where we can put our shadow space on some app and people can buy it on 60, 70, 80 cents on the dollar and you can trade open space and put a couple of partitions and say, here, use the extra 4,000 space. I'm not 4,000 square feet. I'm not using. Why go just, sign a brand new lease, invest in TI when people can just go use other people's dead space? Just, just make sure that we're allowed to swipe right. That's all I have to say. Yeah. The, I think there probably is an app for that. Like the same thing when I host the GoBundance things over here, different guys are like, Hey, maybe we should rent out part of the space with you. Like my, and my unit should be considered part of that shadow but, inventory. Cause even show though me that I'm that here, site, man, show me that site. I think brokers are going to prevent that site from happening. All right, They're the well, ones who get commissions on when deals get signed. They don't want, yeah. they don't want me to know that. Mike is only using three out of the 10,000 square feet that he's using. And he will, he needs a way to get rid of that 7,000 square feet. You're right. We, if just, there lost, isn't we one, just lost our seven be... brokers that listen to us. The, if there isn't a sublease site, you're right. We should spin one up really quickly because it is pretty brilliant. Like the site. And again, like the, just the, the example of that vacant inventory, I've got my 4,000 square foot unit. There's three of us here and I only pay half the rate right now. Right. Because they didn't, they would rather, they would rather let me pay half the market rate than lose me. And so I, I should definitely be considered in that, um, in that mm -hmm. stuff. But I guess let's jump over to one of the other rental articles, um, that I think are, it's two, I guess there's two really interesting things I want to show here. So this article that came out says it's not just you, it's getting harder and harder to find cheap rent across the U S. So this is a business insider article. I love business insider. And then I think this is an example of news that we should talk about, but also the, the problem with news and headlines. And you scroll down and it shows charts and it says, and it's really comparing, it says the number of homes for rent under $600 after adjusting inflation fell from 9.4 million units in 2012 to 7.2 million. And it shows this chart of like from 2012 to 2022, that's a 10 year period, right? So of course, over 10 years, there's less homes under 600. And there's more homes over 2000. Now they say it's inflation uh, it adjusted. And then, you know, Mike, you have that other chart too, that you should pull up that just shows the expenses of stuff compared to income. But at the same time, we have this article that comes out that said, that came out a few days ago. It said rents fall for six months in a row. So for the sixth consecutive month, rents have fallen according to the to realtor.com rental report. It's still 18.3% higher than four years ago. The crazy part about this is rents are only up 18% since 2019. And inflation is up way more than 18% since 2019. And I remember us just from 2019 to 2020, raising rents sometimes 20% year over year. So it's saying you know, rents have fallen for the last six months in a row. Rents are now at, you know, from 2019 to now, a season where they've only, that means they've only gone up 4% a year, which is nothing for rents to go up 4% a year. So rents are kind of lower than they've been in a really long time, even though I think this other article says, hey, you know, it's getting harder and harder to find cheap rent. If nothing else, it's saying, yes, you can't find anything under 600 bucks a month. But in general, other than that, homes are cheaper to rent now than they were a year ago. 
and they're only you know four percent annually more expensive than they were in 2019 and inflation has everyone everyone should be making you know 19 percent more than they were making in 2019 right now and i even after you know big heavy losses that we've taken recently so um mike you should pull up that one um image that you had that was like median income versus the expensive housing. And I think that that's probably a better article. Yeah, look at this. This is crazy. For you guys that are listening on the, the podcast, Mike found this. It says U.S. sales price income ratio. And at the bottom, it shows our median income You know, from the past. I can't see what the start of the date was. It starts at like on the far left from 1984. 22,000 is the median income. 40 years later, our median income is only three times more. That's crazy. 1984, median income was 22000 Today, median income is 74000 So it's tripled. But median price back then was 78000 three and a half times. So it was essentially like the average house was three and a half times the average earning, which that would put houses today at 250000 or something like that. But the median price today is 433000 So what else did you think it was exciting about this image, Mike, when you saw it? Well, I, I just, and again, I, I'll go back to what Ken was saying last week. Cause you know, Ken, Ken's been in multifamily for 30 years now. And I, I just remember listening to Ken McElroy in 2015 saying that, you know, there's a, there's a crash coming and he wasn't buying, he was only doing two deals a year. And then same thing in 2019. And, um, I've actually said this about Aaron before, um, Ken, Ken is similar in that he's predicted two of the last or 19 of the last two recessions, but um, I also think that there's like a lot of wisdom to what, <laughs> um, to, to what Ken is currently talking about. And he's been saying forever that we're moving to a renter nation. The challenge that I wrestle with as a real estate investor in this chart really shows it. We are moving to a renter nation because there's so many people right now. In fact, in this chart, it's, it's pointing out 2014 and it says low interest rates, millennials entered home buying age and a supply shortage have driven house prices through the roof. That was 2014, 2015. We thought things were expensive then. That's what Ken was saying, because the data was showing that. But then when we look at, you know, everything that happened and then COVID and the big drop and, but really this is not about <clears throat> values of inventory. I've said this forever. It's about the drop of purchasing power of the dollar. And, and it's, I mean, when you just look at the income earning ratio, the thing that I can't reconcile in my brain, Aaron, you were saying this in the in the article that you were talking about, like rents have actually gone down a little bit. But if you actually look at a chart of the rise of rents, and then yeah, we get to see this little drop, but compared to the major increase, it's the same thing when we talk about home prices dropping in the last year. Okay, maybe they've come down a little bit, but if you actually balance that over the last three years, they're not anywhere near where they were three years ago. Yes, we had a small correction, but I have a feeling that that chart is just going to continue to climb. Why? Is it because houses are actually, you know, worth more money? No, because the purchasing power of the dollar drops, construction costs are up, labor costs are up. Um, but really, this is why I'm such an advocate for business too. Labor costs are up, but when you look at like household income, it's only 3 x in uh, 35 years. So yeah, costs of everything are going through the roof, but our incomes are not keeping up. And so anyway, to pull this together, the thing that I can't reconcile in my brain, I think rents have to continue to go up. So yeah, rents have come down 6%, but the reality is all these landlords that own rental properties 
yes, we're adjusting to market. Yes, there's inventory coming on the market with, you know, multifamily and all of that. But Ken's prediction at our investor dinner was actually that, yeah, you're going to see rents, you know, drop or maybe stabilize this year. But he thinks after that, we're just going to see prices continue to skyrocket. So he's bullish actually on investing still. And I've been saying this was like even just single family houses, the average real estate investor, I'm pretty convinced, or even just an individual homeowner, any piece of property that you buy today is going to be worth more in fake dollars five years, 10 years from now than it is today. It's really just, you know, can you afford to cash flow that property when rents correct 6%? and then take off again. But the rents have to go up. The 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 real challenge that I can't reconcile is at what point in time can people no longer afford to pay for housing? And that's where we have a real problem. That's the million dollar question right there. It is interesting. I was looking at an article the other day as well, just talking about how, um, Builders are delivering more new apartment units in 2023 than any other year since the 1980s. According to RealPage, 440,000 new apartment units were delivered in 2023, and they are predicting 670,000 new apartment units will be delivered in 2024. And if you go back and you look at all the housing starts, you look at the home builders associations, multifamily and single family, the last few years has been a record number of housing starts and permits. Um, and so it is interesting when you think about the, the demand still being there and probably gonna continue to go up for the sole reason that more and more people are unable to buy, therefore they're going to be forced to rent or younger generations. Gary Keller did a big presentation last week that I got my hands on from a buddy. And essentially it was talking about how millennials and Gen Z, even though they do in many scenarios have the capacity to buy, they value where their dollars are being spent more with experiences and things and people than buying a home. So it's just interesting to see how, right, there's a lot of different macro and micro variables here that could tie into how the real estate economy looks in the next decade. But I agree with you. I think even though there's still, you know, a lot of housing supply, at least, you know, unit and rental supply coming online, that's not an equal distribution across every single market in the US, right? San Francisco is going to be a lot different than Dayton, Ohio, or mm. you know, the next market. So it's it's not a one size fits all and it's not an uh, an equal sharing of the potential challenges or opportunities. It's really a market by market um, you know, study that you really kind of have to dig in on and not take every headline, you know, as a macro uh, application to, you know, every market. Maddie, how many units did you say are coming online? 670,000 estimated new apartment units will be delivered in 2024. 2 million deficit. Yeah. Moody's is still predicting that, uh, our deficit is as high as 2 million units in 2024. There you go. So what does that say? I'd love to hear Aaron. Well, I was just, I, I was muted because I was sitting there cussing about how stupid I think some of those articles are. Not that you, not you guys are putting them out there, but I think that, like, I just don't think that it's really a shortage. The shortage is of like 
the really, really you know, 17 million vacant units in the world, right? Like 70 or 17 million vacant units in the U S at the same time we have the, the shortage, but the, um, hmm. explain you know, so that just, more. What do you so mean? So there's 17 million vacant houses that people aren't occupying right now. So is the issue that we have vacancy or is the issue that most of our stuff is older housing? So when people can no longer afford the nicer stuff, there's obviously plenty of vacant houses out there that are crappier, that are vacant, that somebody would be willing to rent for $600 a month, but people just wouldn't be okay with living there. Right. And then, and, and, and really, and they shouldn't be okay with living there. And I don't know what the solution is, but the solution becomes like a, well, I can only afford 600. There is a house out here that I could rent for 600, but it's not nice enough. I deserve to be uh, in a better spot. And so it's, so I also agree with what those guys are saying. I just think there's a different way to think about um, the amount of vacancy and stuff that's getting built. And what will, what will we see when there's the shortages is the shortage, like people that want to live in a really, really nice place. Or does it mean people start having roommates again? Like Austin is a very expensive place. And I know young people in their twenties that are spending a third of their income on rent and they, because they would prefer not to share a room. And some of them have two bedroom apartments because they want to have their room and they want to have their office. And it's just as easy to say, well, we're, we have a shortage of those two when people have a lot of money, but if they are like making a little bit less money is, Hey, let's share this two bedroom unit. Instead, we no longer have a shortage. Um, I want to do one little diagram about our, you know, price over time thing. Because like, there's a neat way that I try to look at different markets over here. So this is uh, this is from Redfin Data Center. And just showing median prices of like a few different markets. So our, our national average or Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia, right? And I think it's going to let me like draw a line. So if I was going to just draw a line over like, so the median prices here on the left, right? So like before the craziness of 2020, you can see the red, that you know, red, the red, the dark red is like national. So seasonal pr median price goes up, seasonal comes down, seasonal goes up. And so I think I have my diagram pretty much locked in. My line is pretty much lined up with the seasonal low, right? So that means seasonally it should hit there. And what we saw in 2020 was a spike above the norm. So there could be one argument that says prices have to come back down and hit this norm. Right before, before it to truly be balanced again, because what we saw during that time is an anomaly. So there's three different theories about what can happen to prices. Like, so it, our prices is our rent still expensive over time, and they're going to correct down to there. Maybe that's like one article that, that we saw. Um, or is it going to be where really the line is now getting moved to here, right? And so now what we're going to see over time is it's just we had this adjustment that happened during COVID, and we're never going to go back down because of that housing shortage type thing. So is this created by a housing shortage? Because the houses stopped being built back here in 2005, right? So like, I don't think that this spike was because of housing shortages because the housing got, stopped getting built back then. But maybe that's going into it way too much. But you see some markets too, like Philadelphia, that I could take that bottom number, that bottom line. And, we've, and Philadelphia has corrected. So I would argue there's probably no housing shortage in Philadelphia, right? because prices have already dropped below that line. If that makes sense, I hope I didn't go to too much of like the, like the mechanics of it and how people see that. But I think um, anyway, also depends on the market uh, where I, we're seeing so much stuff getting built. I don't think that a year from now, people are going to be still saying housing shortages is what's, is what's creating the, the, the prices staying up or prices going down. What do you think it's going to be? Affordability. 
affordability and then also the uh, this belief of entitlement, right? So I do think though that when people can no longer start affording and they and they walk into the house that they could rent for six hundred dollars, that people start to revolt a little bit and go, "This is ludicrous. I deserve better." And and the and I don't I don't blame them for that, although that is capitalism. There is a house available for mm -hmm. anyone that wants a house to live in today. Mm. It just isn't as nice as the one that they want to for as low of a price as they're willing to pay. Did you see this manufactured housing? Uh, there was an article where people were making 800 square foot like single family houses and they're just lined up like Pleasantville. And we were talking about this right before we started recording Mooch. Like, yeah, if the median price is not, if it's increasing and it needs to be more affordable, does it just, is this just a cost of construction issue? Where you so, just replace, you know, the bottom twenty percent of houses that were pre nineteen eighty, and you just replace them with thousand square foot, prefab, cute, cheap homes. I also put I mean, an article into the chat, like that the majority of our population in twenty twenty three was increased by immigrants. All those people have to find a place to stay too, and is are they going to fill in the 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 capacity that you're talking about? Or are they going to have higher standards too? So like, where do you see trends in terms of like, like maybe construction, is construction going to change? Are developers going to think differently now? Like no more building large um, developments where you have construction crews out there. It's like just the level of the land and pop in a bunch of houses. I've Cheap talked way too fast. much. So I'm going to, I'm going to give two minutes and then I'm not going to talk the whole rest of the podcast because I've talked way too much about the stuff I got excited about here. I am all in on manufactured housing as part of that solution right now. Um, and where we are, I do think it's a cost of goods sold thing. And we even looked at it for rebuilding in some of our neighborhoods where we're, if you guys are following me on Instagram, you're seeing that we're going big and like providing, you know, we're going big on, on that company, right? Like putting in manufactured housing because we can build now for 90 bucks or a hundred bucks uh, a square foot. And we're also going into some of those neighborhoods and saying, hey, uh, our cost, we were going to build a house for 1600, that was a 1600 square foot house. But based on where pricing is, like the, let's just do a 1200 square foot house. We'll do a 1200 square foot house now. It's a three bedroom rental. It's going to be brand new construction. So now it's actually cheaper to buy a crappy $75,000 house, level it, get rid of it and put the mods on there. I think these mod factories are billion dollar companies. Like I am glad that I am tied into two fact, like one factory that's existing and another getting built. And I want to be involved in like 10 more factories getting built. Like if we were going to do something that I thought was the new billion dollar company, we'd be put in a factory in Austin. We'd put, be put in another factory in California, maybe one out in Hawaii where the stuff burnt down. That, that stuff brings cost of construction way down and cost of construction well, the, will be the, the one thing that can average it. These companies yep. have existed for a while, Mooch. They, they are... I'd love to hear more why, why you think those companies are actually profitable or not, but like these companies have existed for 20 years and it just hasn't picked up. Are the di are the demographics such now that, okay, now, now the, the, the time is where it's going to really change both in commercial and residential. I mean, it, it's, it's not the, so, I mean, even the manufactured housing industry, you guys may or may not know this, but I've been watching the stats on yeah, traditional exactly. manufactured housing for, I mean, since 2007, but 
I'm part of the Manufactured Housing Association. They deliver between eight and 10,000 units a month consistently for as long as I can remember. Um, I think Ashish and, and Aaron, I'll, I'll kick this back to you because you're you're dealing with this on the ground. I I don't think it's the manufacturers that haven't you know picked up. I think it's the change of the perspective around manufactured housing because what it used to be is what I'm involved in a mobile home park with these single white houses or two units that you stick together. And so I think two things have happened. Number one, the public has accepted the fact that manufactured housing is okay. And what Aaron is talking about is different than what I do, but the look of it has changed, but it really, the way they're building it is not that different. People think of mobile homes and they think of these 1976 tin can, like, you know, little single wides. The reality is like, the manufactured homes that we've been buying have been beautiful for a long time and you can get all kinds of different, what they're doing is changing the look of it. They're changing. My in-laws have a ranch in Wyoming at the base of the black Hills. It's a beautiful ranch and they have a 5,800 square foot house. That's literally two stories. That's a manufactured home. They literally had cranes that came and stacked this home and, and it was built in like four weeks instead of like a year and a half or whatever. And so Two things have changed. The public's perspective, the public image of what manufactured housing is, number one. Number two, I think zoning and municipalities yeah. allowing, you know, guys like Aaron to do what they're saying that they're going to do. So I think part of the reason perception change is cost. People are like, they're okay. And they're highly customizable. You could take a 20,000 square foot custom home plan and they can send it to the factory and the factory can bring it out and it's going to come on seven trucks and get put together. But now they're customizable. Um, and then the actual construction that they're doing is the same construction. And I don't know if it's always been like that. Like what if mobile homes or, or manufactured housing before had, you know, two by six studs with the same insulation, the same everything. I think of, I think of them as on wheels or not, but maybe it's just becoming more socially acceptable because of cost, maybe because they're highly customizable. But the reason the building departments are okay with it is because now they're built exactly the same, right? Like the, now the actual construction is exactly the same as a normal house. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a game changer. The, the only difference between, I've been to multiple factories and, and watched this. The only difference between, I mean, it's a two by six wall. It depends on how you want to order it. Um, but two by six construction, um, you know, R19, R13, like everything's exactly the same. And you're right, they do show up on on wheels but then the only difference between a house that shows up on wheels and then one that gets permanentized is you either put it on a foundation or you don't mm -hmm. which the foundation has to be built on site no matter what and so again it it is just public perspective the wheels come off the tongue comes off you either put it on a foundation or you don't but the labor costs going into these factories whether it's a factory that aaron's talking about or one that i've been going to for 10 years the guys don't have to put their tools away. The guys that are framing, that's all they do every day. Their tools are out and they're only framing. And then literally it moves down the factory. So after it's framed, it goes to the next space and the electricians put their stuff in and then they move it down the factory and the plumbers put their stuff in. They don't have to drive to a job site. They don't have to worry about, you know, any of the, there's so much downtime. It's safer. As, yeah. yeah. It, it's more efficient. It's safer. It's, it's, better work conditions. You're not in the winter, right? Your hands don't freeze. Your tools are safe. Yeah. 
Yeah, it makes so much sense. Why does this not happen? Regulation. What they're doing in California is a big part of um, because there's such major affordability issues and housing issues in California. I forget what the exact law was that they changed on a state level, but they essentially made ADUs uh, available to every site. Yeah. Yeah. In California now, that that in itself, right? Just that that's a big process change for California, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just a big deal when you think about the amount of time and energy and costs that goes into just seeing whether or not it's possible to do on your property. Let alone just immediately removing that barrier and giving people an actual incentive to go and pursue that, right? Like that's just one small example of how you know, bureaucracy can work for you or against you. And obviously I do agree. Construction is a massive, you know, the costs of it are a massive deterrent when those costs are very uncontrollable in a lot of ways. If you can build bumpers to that building process to ensure and incentivize builders to go out and develop more, they're going to go and do it more. But with a lot of these variables, you know, being unknowns, if you can eliminate some of that risk, you can systematize through the technology. You can work through, obviously, a lot of the cities and the regulation around it. If it's in a positive way and it's pro-developer, right? Those are things that are going to incentivize it. But when you do the complete opposite in states like, you know, California or New York City, you know, and you see developers being, you know, demonized and penalized. And then you've got all of the cities working against you. You've got all of the codes and the density and the zoning working against you. And then you have all of these other, there's, there's a reason why more people aren't doing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we, we said this a couple of pods ago about how Gen Xers, I mean, if everybody's moving to a renter nation, and I can speak for myself on this is like as a millennial too. I think more and more millennials decided we don't want to have we want to we don't want to own the responsibility of a house. We just want to live in apartments. It's more convenient. We want to spend the money on experiences. I think Gen Xers are probably double or triple that. I think if you gave me the option to live in an apartment versus a small, easy to maintain home, I'd probably take that as an option. But do I want a big house with landscaping and a pool and all that maintenance and all that? I think I think generational trends are going to push us towards this too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what's happening on the pod. We're buying. <laughs> we're buying some dirt. We're buying. We're building some factories. We're taking capital and listeners. We're taking some capital. Nobody's going to argue with more affordable housing, especially the last to put my exclamation point on it. I, when I first walked through one of these houses right after it got dropped, I was just freaking blown away that it was as nice as any. They're nice. Know, I'm looking they're nice. They are just not, I was expecting not high quality and it was super high quality. I was blown away. Yeah. So anyway, the uh, fun chat today, guys. Fun chat. Well, thanks again. Here we are at the King's Table. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Remember to subscribe on our YouTube channel and make sure you follow us also on all our audio-only Spotify and Apple. 
Um, thanks so much for listening. My name is Ashish, of course, from the trend spotter, Aaron Amujastegi, the sage, Mike Ayala, and the hero of hospitality himself, Maddie Atchison. We are the King's Table. Thanks so Aren't much for listening. Aren't you the Sultan of Sofas? And the Sultan of Sofas. Sultan of Sofas. Sticky. Ashish Nathu. That got sticky. I love you guys. Good, good pod. See ya. Peace. Bye.